Welcome, guys, to Do Good Podcast. I am your host, Rob Watson, and I've got a really fascinating guest lined up for you today. Her name's Dr. Sarah Michael. She's a qualified medicine doctor, and for almost 40 years, she's focused tirelessly on identifying and treating the underlying causes of health problems. She's worked in the NHS and private practice, for, and for 17 years, was the honorary secretary of the British Society for Ecological Medicine. She's published numerous, numerous scientific studies and her website has an extensive resource of articles and information based on her treatment of patients, which covers literally hundreds of pages and has been viewed many millions of times. And she's also the author of several books, including Ecological Medicine, Chronic Fatigue Syndrome and Diabetes, just to name a few. So firstly, Sarah, thank you for agreeing to chat with me today. My pleasure. So anyone who maybe is the first time they might be hearing the term ecological medicine, could you please expand on that a little bit and give us a bit of information? Okay. Modern conventional medicine has lost its way. It no longer looks for disease causation. It has been subjugated into a simple algorithm of headache, anti-headache pills, you know, and, and temporary relief of symptoms. What the proper ecological doctor is doing is looking, asking the question, why has that person got a headache? Why does that person suffer from high blood pressure? Why does that person suffer from arthritis? We are looking for the underlying mechanisms that result in that, those patterns of symptoms. So for example, arthritis is not a diagnosis. Arthritis is a symptom. We have to ask the question why. And so much boils down to allergy. And by through correcting somebody's diet, looking at their gut microbiome, giving them some supplements, you can reverse arthritis quite easily actually. So it's all about asking the question why. And I got into this whole area of medicine because as I was working as a general practitioner, you know, these were the questions my patients were asking me. They were saying to me, why do I suffer from migraine? Why do I have Crohn's disease? You know, why have I got cancer? And you know, the shameful thing was my medical training had not prepared me for those questions. My medical training told me, so, oh, um, you know, headache is paracetamol deficiency. You know, high cholesterol is statin deficiency. You know, depression is you know um, uh, SSRI um, uh, inhibitors um, deficiency. You know, they were all classed as drug deficiency diseases. Why? Because then you could put them on a drug. And who did that make money for? Big pharma. Medical education nowadays is bankrolled by the drug companies. Are they going to bankroll education that isn't doesn't return a healthy profit? No, of course they're not going to. So, you know, um, in those early days, you know, I was trying to answer these questions and I didn't know the answers. But thankfully, thankfully, I had lovely patients who didn't mind that I didn't know. Um, they were just pleased that I said, I don't know, but let's try this, let's try that, let's try the other. And I started off down this line with allergy. Um, and I myself had uh, asthma and chronic sinusitis um, as a child. And I just thought, well, yeah, that's with me forever. Then um, in 1982, um, I gave birth to my first daughter. And when I was breastfeeding her, she had the most awful colic. And I can remember my, husband, my then husband saying to me, you know, you're the effing doctor, you sort it out. And by chance, I stumbled across the idea, maybe it's dairy allergy, cut out the dairy products. And to my complete astonishment, her colic disappeared overnight. My sinusitis and my asthma disappeared equally quickly. And when I went to look, is that in the medical textbooks anywhere? It was nowhere to be found. 
And here we are, you know, three incredibly common conditions. Um, you, know, um, you know, one in 10 of the population probably suffers from these. And there's nothing about this in the medical textbook. And that's the moment when I suddenly realized, you've got to start thinking for yourself. You've got to start being a proper medical detective. You've got to start asking the question why. And through allergy, you know, I learned that so much irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's disease, um, arthritis, um, 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 migraine, as I've mentioned, uh, irritable bladders, uh, so many conditions, you know, acne spots were related to allergy and diet. But the real challenge came, uh, and this is cha a challenge I am still struggling with. The real challenge came in treating patients with chronic fatigue syndrome and ME. Because um, and I had good people coming to me. I had world-class athletes, you know, England cricketers, England footballers, you know, top-performing athletes coming to me with severe fatigue who did not like being told it was all in the mind because that's what the psychiatrists do. They said it's all in the mind, some cognitive behavior therapy, some graded exercise, and, and all will be well. And it didn't, not only does it not work, it actually makes them worse. So what are we going to do for these people with chronic fatigue syndrome? And that was the beginning of my um, ventures, I suppose, into chronic fatigue syndrome and ME, trying to work out the underlying reason why. Um, Would you like me to talk about those? Yeah, please. Do, yeah. The key point to remember about chronic fatigue syndrome and ME is they are, they are not diagnoses, they are clinical pictures. Again, this is a major stumbling block for doctors. They, they, they call something arthritis and they think that's a diagnosis. They call something Parkinson's disease and they think that's a diagnosis. They call something multiple sclerosis and they think that's a diagnosis. It is not a diagnosis, it is a clinical picture. You always have to ask the question why. And um, when a patient comes to see me, of course, I want to know all about their symptoms and, um, um, and the mechanisms which underline those symptoms. Now, chronic fatigue syndrome is characterized by profound fatigue. And um, uh, ME is different. ME is, is also chronic fatigue syndrome. But in ME, there are symptoms of inflammation. And inflammation is determined by malaise, i.e. feeling ill. You know, um, heat, fever, pain, it's always painful, swelling, redness, and loss of function. So those two, and, and, and the fatigue syndrome um, pictures, they present with poor energy delivery to the body. Poor energy delivery to the body manifests with physical fatigue, no stamina, activities have to be paced, post-exertional malaise. So if they overdo one things one day, they pay for it the next. It's characterized by poor energy delivery to the heart. So often these patients have atypical chest pain, low blood pressure, maybe tachycardia. It's characterized by poor energy delivery to the brain. And that means they can't think clearly, they've got foggy brain, they can't multitask, their short-term memory is awful, um, you know, their brain just does not function to its full potential. Now, the key point about symptoms is they are actually very important. You know, we all think symptoms are a nuisance. You know, they're a pain, literally. And there's no fun being fatigued. It's no fun being in pain. But symptoms are very important because they protect us from ourselves. So let me give you the example for the chronic fatigue syndrome patients. We all have a certain bucket of energy to spend in the day. And, um, um, uh, and, and that's what we can do. 
And then we have a certain amount of energy that we actually do spend. And much of that is spent on basal metabolism, but some is spent on having a physical life, some on a mental life, some on an emotional life. But if that energy gap narrows, so we start to demand more energy than we can supply, we're running into danger. Why? Because if energy demand exceeds energy delivery, we drop dead. Because the heart doesn't have the energy to work, the brain doesn't have the energy, you go into acute organ failure. So the body cannot allow that to happen. It can never allow us to overspend because we drop dead. And therefore, to stop that happening, as that energy gap narrows, it gives us deeply unpleasant symptoms. Deeply unpleasant symptoms which stop us spending energy. Our muscles get so full of lactic acid, they're so painful, they literally cannot move. And that symptom is so profound, it's what stops athletes winning gold medals, for example. Um, um, and another thing the brain does to stop spending energy is it gives us nasty symptoms like depression. And I think depression and anxiety are symptoms the brain gives us when it knows it doesn't have the energy to deal with demand. So what happens when somebody's depressed? They want to curl up in a corner. They don't want to socialize. They don't want to be with people. They just want to you know, curl up and hibernate and, 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 and be away. Why? It stops them spending energy. And, and, and many patients with fatigue syndrome you know, are very justifiably you know, depressed and anxious because they haven't got the energy to deal with the demands of life. So when I'm treating somebody with chronic ketone or ME, I'm looking at both sides of the equation. And we start off by looking at energy delivery mechanisms. How does the body make energy? And then we look at how the body is spending energy. So let's look at energy delivery mechanisms. And an analogy I use all the time, which um, I like because my patients can get and it keeps us on track, is the car analogy. So for your car to go, you've got to have the right fuel in the tank. I mean, I have a beaten up old truck that runs on diesel. If I put petrol in it, it chunders along and stops and coughs and splutters and doesn't like it at all. You've got to have the right fuel in the tank. You've then got to have the mitochondrial engine. Now, this is my area of, of, of um, uh, special area of interest. I published three papers on that. And, um, uh, and the first paper demonstrated that those patients with the most severe fatigue have the worst mitochondrial function and vice versa. And getting fit is all about improving mitochondrial, yes, mitochondrial function, but also the numbers of mitochondria. Because if you've got lots of mitochondria, then your car has a big engine and therefore it can you know, go further and go for longer. And of course, exercise is a powerful stimulus for that. Then we have the thyroid accelerator pedal uh, and the adrenal gearbox. And the thyroid gland and the adrenal gland uh, increase energy uh, delivery through their actions on mitochondria. So um, when I'm thinking about treating people, I'm the, the, you know, very often at the first point, those are the four issues that we are looking at. And the most important one is to get the right fuel in the tank. Now, when people first started coming to see me, I was far too enthusiastic. <laughs> and um, I would give them a shopping list of things to do. These supplements, uh, you know, basic package, mitochondrial supplements, um, you've got to do this diet, and you'll treat the thyroid, we'll do this and that. And what would they do? They'd go and cherry pick and do the easy things first. Now, <laughs> and, and, and I now know that there is a particular order in which we have to treat people. And actually, this order is the same for all Western diseases. So it doesn't matter if somebody comes to you with dementia, or cancer, or heart disease, or acne, or arthritis, or whatever. 
absolutely key to treating all those things um, is the diet. Now, people then say, well, you know, what, what, what diet and, 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 and why did you arrive at that diet? And again, there's a very simple philosophy here. Humans evolved over hundreds of thousands of years eating a paleo, ketogenic diet. Paleo, because they had no dairy products, they had no gluten grains and very little yeast. Ketogenic, because they got their calories from fat and from fiber. Now, you will turn around and say to me, oh, but Bob Mann, they found some, uh, uh, you know, some potato and some beans or something in his gut. Yes, he did have access to carbohydrates, but only for a very limited window of time, and that's called the autumn. What happens in the autumn? We have a free harvest. We have an autumn windfall. When we get free apples, free bananas, free potatoes, you know, free pulses, free grains, and they are all high-carbohydrate foods. And primitive man started eating those foods and got addicted because carbohydrates are very addictive. And as a result of that, he ate and he ate and he ate and his insulin levels were high. And what did the insulin do? That stuffed all the carbohydrate into fat. He got fat. Now, fat is massive survival value for the winter. Why? Because it has an insulating layer and it's a great food source. I mean, if, if primitive man goes into hibernation, he can, he can last a long time on fat. You know, fat is very energy dense. So, um, you know, being obese, fat, you know, um, is, is a great thing to be. What made primitive man eat carbohydrates is the fact that they are addictive. And what happens when you have an addictive food? You can't stop eating it. And, so, and for primitive man, that's great survival value. But of course, the autumn harvest came to an end. You know, the potatoes went rotten, the grain disappeared, fruit went rotten and he had to return to his paleo ketogenic diet he had to return to feeding himself with, with uh, on, as the results of hunting fishing um, um, and that's what sustained him through the winter until you know the next year came around now the trouble with modern life is that we still have that addictive gene we still eat carbohydrates in an addictive way but we eat them all year because we can yeah the, uh, the food processors, you know, the, 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 the farmers, you know, absolutely realize that we are addicted to carbohydrates and that's what they prove, they provide. You, know, you want to sell something, make sure it's an addiction because you, you can be assured of a good market. Now, I'm told that um, cigarette sales are as good as, that cigarette companies are making more money than they've ever made because they don't spend any on advertising these days. But because people are addicted, they go on smoking. And it's the same with sugars and carbohydrates. People eat them in an addictive way. And um, that causes all sorts of problems. It's called metabolic syndrome. So you get immediate problems when um, you eat carbohydrates, your blood sugar goes up and therefore insulin is poured out and therefore your blood sugar comes down. The brain panics because it thinks it's running out of fuel and it sends out adrenaline. And we get these terrible symptoms of hypoglycemia, which is an adrenaline effect. But what does that adrenaline also do? It puts your blood pressure up. So the treatment for hypertension is a paleoketogenic diet. It also means that if you're eating carbohydrates all the time, you're running high sugar levels and high insulin levels. What does that do? It makes you fat. Um, and, uh, and, and, and after years of that, you will develop metabolic syndrome, you will be, develop pre-diabetes, and then you will become diabetic. And I learned the other day that in America, the 
diabetes and pre-diabetes now afflicts more than 50% of the population. It's a major health disaster. And we now know that those conditions, high sugar, high insulin, drives heart disease, cancer, and dementia. And guess what dementia is now being called type 3 diabetes? It's diabetes of the brain. So um, the first thing I have to do, and do with my patients who have chronic fatigue syndrome is put the right fuel in the tank. And that fuel is ketones. And we get ketones by um, breaking down fats. And we get ketones through the fermentation of fiber in the large bowel. They produce short-chain fatty acids. Now, that doesn't mean there'll be no carbohydrates in the diet. There, of course, are some. I mean, even if you eat you know, beans and, you know, and some um, um, meat and some fish, you know, the body can convert that to, to sugars. But the, the, the point is, it's much tinier doses. And um, so the first thing I do for my patients is I absolutely insist, and this is non-negotiable. <laughs> I become vicious, bossy, nasty. I now know they must do a paleo-ketogenic diet for reasons of allergy and for reasons of the correct fuel. Now, I've even written a book about it. It's called the PK Cookbook. So that details the sort of foods you can have and, uh, and how you prepare them. But what has been very helpful is one of these gadgets. I don't know if people are watching the podcast and they can see me, but it's a ketone breath meter. And it's a very good way of making sure you are in ketosis. Now, okay, they cost 35 quid, so they're not cheap, but you can get hundreds of tests out of it. And um, what you do is you turn it on and it takes you know, um, a few seconds to warm up. So it gives you a countdown from 20 um, to naught. When it gets to naught, it beeps at you you then blow into it and then it beeps again and you stop blowing into it and it gives you a reading. And I like my patients to be in ketosis and they should be in ketosis all the time. So here we go. Sometimes it takes another 20 seconds to warm up. But the, the point about the ketone breath meters is you can blow into it and it takes two, 20 seconds to do. You can blow into it after every meal to make sure that that diet is right for you. Because what people want to be told is, oh, you can eat this, you can hang on, here we go. Okay, so it beeps a second time and um, um, it gives you a few seconds to come up and then there you go. I'm blowing 9.5 parts per million of ketones. So I'm well in ketosis. So I'm, I've done the diet sufficiently thoroughly. But everybody's different. Men can often get away with more carbohydrates than women. You know, if you're an athlete, you can probably get away with more carbohydrates than a non-athlete. But um, so there isn't a diet where you can eat this and you can eat that and you can eat the other. It's a diet of you can eat everything. It's a question of degree. And, um, uh, and in the PK cookbook, I detail the sort of foods that you can you can get away with very easily. You know, you can have a, you know, you can have a, a lot of the my paleo ketogenic bread, for example, which looks like bread. It's got great texture, but it's made from linseed. Jaw of linseed, two percent carbs. Again, but there's a whole chapter about the dairy alternatives you can have. Now, in the early 1980s, when I was breastfeeding my daughter, you know, the only dairy alternative was this rather awful kind of tasteless grey liquid, which was called soya milk. We now have much better milks. We have delicious coconut milks. We have delicious coconut cheeses. We have delicious um, the vegan block butters. Um, we have delicious co coconut yogurts, which are dairy free and low carb. So I now can have a cheese roll if I want to. You know, I don't feel deprived anymore. In fact, the, the PK dot has never been easier to do. 
And really there's no excuse for not doing it other than addiction. And people are eating carbohydrates all the time. They are addicts. You know, they, they, they get relief from their symptoms when they eat them and then they get withdrawal symptoms and they have to snack and then they get withdrawal symptoms and they have to have something for lunch and they, get, and they have something. They're constantly snacking throughout the day. And that is a metabolic disaster. And it's also a disaster for the gut because this brings me on to my next you know, subject where this diet is so awful, which is the fermenting gut. Now, you know, um, the, you know, the gut the human gut is almost unique in the mammal world because the upper gut is a sterile digesting gut. So it allows to eat meat and fat. The lower gut is a fermenting gut and that allows us to deal with fiber. So when carbohydrates come along, if we have too many of them, then we overwhelm our ability to deal with them. We overwhelm our ability to digest and absorb them uh, sufficiently and the microbes move in. And bacteria will happily ferment sugars and starches. Yeast will happily ferment sugars and starches. And that results in a whole load more problems. First of all, because when you take nutritional supplements and because of modern agriculture, we should all be taking a good multivitamin and a good multimineral. Um, 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 you, if, if you're taking those and you've got an upper fermenting gut, you're just feeding the bugs because they're as hungry for micronutrients as we are. So the first thing that happens is you malabsorb. So we end up with people with low, low levels of B12, low levels of B vitamins, low levels of minerals. In fact, low levels of minerals is almost universal. The second problem is that those microbes will ferment sugars to produce toxic substances. So if you've got yeast in there and you feed it sugar, it will ferment to produce alcohol. Now, if you gave me a glass of wine for breakfast and lunch, I wouldn't be able to function. You know, I'd be completely, you know, doolally. Um, but it's not just alcohol. There are propyl alcohols, butyl alcohols. Um, there are delactate, um, uh, ammoniacal compounds. You know, there's a whole range of nasty chemicals that are produced. And the drainage, the blood from the gut, goes via the portal vein to the liver, and the liver has to sort out this toxic soup. And guess what? That requires a lot of vitamins and minerals. It also requires a lot of energy. So just to give you an example of how much energy the liver uses, at rest, the brain uses, although it just weighs 2% of body weight, it uses about 20% of the total energy that we're generating in the body. The heart at rest uses about 7% of all the energy that we're generating in the body. The liver uses what the heart, the heart and the brain combine. The liver consumes 27% of all the energy that we generate, which is a massive amount. So if you've got a toxic gut, you've got a liver which is using all the energy, that, or a huge chunk of the energy that the body's producing, and a huge chunk of all the raw materials that the body requires. So you know, that is a huge drain on the system. And the third problem with the upper fermenting gut is called bacterial translocation. Now, at medical school, you know, we are taught that, um, yes, you know, the gut is full of bacteria, but, and there they stay. Not true. We now know that a small proportion of those microbes do get into the bloodstream. It's called bacterial translocation. Now, if those are friendly microbes from the lower gut, that the immune system has been looking at for hundreds of thousands of years is to say, oh, no problem, they're friendly microbes, we can deal with those, they pass through the kidneys and we pee them out and that's the end of that. 
But if they're unfriendly microbes that the immune system is not used to looking at, it starts to react against them. And when it reacts against them, that's called inflammation. And the inflammation will occur wherever those microbes end up. So if they get stuck in your muscles and connective tissue, we call that fibromyalgia, which is a, a, a part of CFS and ME. Um, if it gets stuck in your skin, it can drive chronic urticaria or rosacea or acne or, or, or maybe eczematous rashes. Um, if it gets stuck in your lungs, we call that intrinsic asthma. Uh, we know that um, both Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis are associated with an abnormal microbiome. So there may be the inflammatory reactions in the gut are driven by that. So a huge amount of pathology is results from the fermenting gut. So um, I do like my patients to take nutritional supplements, but there's no point taking them while they're fermenting because you're just feeding the bugs and making everything else worse. So we have to get rid of those microbes from the upper gut. And how do we do that? Well, first of all, you stop feeding them. You know, if you're eating sugars and carbohydrates and starches, you are feeding those microbes. So, you know, that's a complete disaster. So the paleoketogenic diet is based on fat and fiber. Now, microbes cannot ferment fat. You know, how do I know that? You know, I can put a lump of lard in my fridge and it's there for months and it doesn't get bad or off or, 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 or gets you know, bugs growing on it. But, you know, you leave carbohydrates around the place and they go rotten very quickly. So microbes cannot ferment fat. Um, and that's why our diet should be fat-based, protein-based, and, yeah, and, and fiber-based, so high in vegetables. Okay, there's a little bit of carbohydrate there. There will always be a little bit of carbohydrate there. But the gut can perfectly well deal, the sterile gut can perfectly well deal with a little bit of carbohydrate, keep the gut sterile because of the acid that's there, and that doesn't cause a fermentation problem. So the first thing you do is starve them out with the PK diet, and then you kill them with vitamin C. Now, I've got to the stage in my career where you know, I, I, I know I can't cure the whole world. Obviously, as a, as, a, as a newly qualified doctor, of course you can cure the whole world. But now I've woken up to that, I can't quite manage that. And therefore, I'm looking for tools of the trade, as I call them, that anybody can access because there are not enough ecological doctors to go around. And not enough people like me you know, to cure the world. So I have to tell people what they can do for themselves and thereby empower themselves to cure themselves. And in the books that I'm writing, and the latest one, as you rightly point out, is Ecological Medicine, is how anybody can tackle any disease using tools that everybody can access. There's nothing in there that you can't do off your own bat. And a fantastically useful tool of the trade is vitamin C. Why? It's cheap, anybody can get it, it's completely safe, and it multitasks. It does so many different jobs. So yes, it helps to sterilize the upper gut. It's uh, the, uh, a prime way of getting rid of any infections, whether that's acute or chronic. Um, it's a vital antioxidant, so it slows the aging process. It's essential for connective tissue, and we should all be taking at least five grams a day. That's 5,000 milligrams a day, and for some people, probably more. But vitamin C is a great tool for the fermenting gut. Why? It contact kills all microbes. You know, it kills all bacteria, you know, all yeast, um, um, uh, all parasites. It's a brilliant tool. So five grams of vitamin C every day, possibly more. So when we've got our PK diet in place and we've cleaned up our upper gut with vitamin C, then we're in a fit state to start to absorb some micronutrients. Now, 
when I have a new, you know, naive um, uh, uh, patient who comes to see me for the first time, who is not taking supplements and not doing the diet, I don't bother to do tests anymore because I know what the results are going to be. They will be deficient. And until they get the fermenting gut sorted out, they won't be able to correct. So I have a basic package of nutritional supplements I use. Very simple, good multivitamin, good multimineral, and I've made up my own multimineral, which I call sunshine salt, because 80% sea salt on a ketogenic diet, you need extra salt. 80% sea salt together with all the calcium, magnesium, zinc, copper, selenium, chromium, boron, molybdenum, da-da-da-da-da, all the minerals I'm allowed to put in there. Together with a big dose of vitamin D, guess why? Everybody's deficient. Together with a big dose of vitamin B12, why? Because everybody's deficient. And in the doses that I'm giving and in the combination, the potential for harm is zero. I mean, if you overdose with sunshine salt, you get so much salt in your stomach, you would just vomit. So it's deliciously safe. All age groups, children, babies, adults, humans, pregnant mums, anybody can use it and it's a, it's a joy to use. It tastes delicious and it's very safe. So that's what I call my basic package. So if people listening to this podcast do nothing other then get onto a PK diet, sort out their fermenting gut, and take a basic package of supplements, you will be getting yourself an awful long way. And that is the starting point to treat all Western diseases from, say, cancer, dementia, heart disease, chronic fatigue syndrome, um, you know, allergic asthma, chronic bronchiectasis, uh, and even schizophrenia. I'm not sure if you're aware of the work of um, Carl Pfeiffer and Abram Hoffer, both psychiatrists both what's called, they call themselves orthomolecular doctors. Now, it's a dreadful name, but it just means the right molecule. But they, too, were ecological doctors. They were getting down to, 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 the, to the basic cause of why do people have these conditions? And they treated their schizophrenic, manic-depressive, psychotic patients with a ketogenic diet. And guess what? They did fantastically well. Their psychosis went... You know, their moods stabilized, their energy returned. And yes, they put in a few supplements like niacinamide and fish oils and other bits and bobs like that, but they got fantastic results. So, you know, ask yourself again, why is that not standard treatment for every patient with any sort of mental disease? And the answer is, follow the money. You know, well, you know um, it's um, uh, carbohydrates are addictive. And so these people who have mental stress, they use addiction to control their mental stress and they cannot bear the idea of not having that. So there's, there's the food industry who follow the money and also the pharmaceutical companies, you know, who make a fortune out of psychoactive drugs, whether it's you know, antidepressants or tranquilizers or major um, uh, uh, antipsychotics or whatever, major tranquilizers. So, um, um, so, so anybody listening, you want to switch off now and do what I've said, then you will be doing yourself a very good favor. But we then move on to the next step. So, so now we've just talked about the fuel in the tank. And that's diet, speaker diet, and micronutrients. Now we move on to the mitochondrial engine. I work, for years, I've worked in very close collaboration with the most brilliant biochemist ever called John McLaren Howard. And it was in the early 1990s, mid-1990s, that I kind of said to him in a rather nervous moment, you know, is it possible that mitochondria are implicated in um, chronic fatigue syndrome because they are the engines, they are the energy suppliers to the cells? 
mitochondria was a subject that, yes, we are taught about mitochondria at medical school. Um, at second, second MB, um, we do biochemistry and you have to pass the biochemistry exams. And biochemistry is, at that stage, as far as I understand, that was dead boring. It's just something you had, it's just a box you had to tick. So you'd muddied up the night before, you know, you'd uh, struggle through your biochemistry exams, hoping you'd get enough points to, to um, pass, and then you forget it all the next day. And of course, central to biochemistry were mitochondrial function. And the reason we forgot about it is because mitochondria had no clinical application. Now, nobody said mitochondria are implicated in heart failure, mitochondria implicated in dementia, mitochondria implicated in diabetes. All things we now know is absolute fact. They are implicated in all those pathologies, but that was not known in the 1970s. So um, I said to John, is it possible to measure mitochondrial function in patients with chronic fatigue syndrome and ME? And bless him, he came up with the most fantastic test. And I've now done 1,036 of those tests, and the results are very consistent. They are so consistent that we don't need to have that test to treat mitochondrial dysfunction effectively. And mitochondria can go slow for a number of reasons. They may go slow because there's a wrong fuel in the tank. So the starting point to treat mitochondrial dysfunction is a ketogenic diet. Mitochondria like to run on ketones. That is their preferred fuel. Then mitochondria can go slow because they're deficient in um, a micronutrient. And what we find is there are four, no, five common rate limiting steps. So if they will, mitochondria will go slow if you're deficient in magnesium, coenzyme Q Q10, acetyl-L-carnitine, narcinamide, which is vitamin B3, and D-ribose. And um, the details of the doses of things that you need, correct that, are all in ecological medicine. I'm not going to go through those now because they're standard. So then you need to take supplements to help the mitochondria to function. Then mitochondria may be going slow because they're poisoned by something. And again, I twigged with this because when I moved to Wales, I'm, I'm working uh, 10 years in NHS practice in Wales with a farming community. And um, in this farming community, you know, the farmers as a routine use organophosphate pesticides, for shipping sheep, for milking parlor, agricultural sprays because they are so effective but they poison farmers and the business of making energy is called oxidative phosphorylation and organophosphates block that extremely well so guess what these people end up with a chronic fatigue syndrome so usually you can get clues from the history as to what's blocking mitochondria so you know if they've farm with sheep did um, a fireman who's uh, been exposed to smoke, uh, smoke fumes, you know, that will inhibit mitochondria. Aerotoxic pilots, um, I don't know if you're uh, aware, but um, um, cabin air um, is drawn in over the engines. And if the oil seals are less than perfect, then you will pump cabin, uh, you will pump, pump engine fumes into the cabin. Now, jet engines function about 700 degrees, very hot. And to stop the, the oil seals you know, burning, they add an additive called um, triclosulfosphate, PCP, which is a, an organophosphate. It's incredibly toxic. And I've seen any number of airline pilots who have been poisoned by organophosphates. It's a very dangerous business. The last thing you want is the pilot of your airplane being poisoned and, and being knocked off or knocked out. And it may well be that that explains many you know, major otherwise inexplicable um, aircraft events. But from the history, you can get clues as to if somebody's been poisoned. And if they have, yes, you have to put in place 
measure what they've been poisoned by, and put in place the relevant detox rate. So if you've done all those things, there's no reason why the mitochondria can't work well. So we then have to move on to the control mechanisms of the mitochondria. And that's the thyroid accelerator pedal and the adrenal gearbox. And guess what? If your car's going to go efficiently, you need both. The adrenal gland allows us to gear up into overdrive in order to deal with some sort of stress, whatever that may be. So I'm quite sure that when Steve Redgrave was rowing his, you know, Olympic, you know, um, uh, uh, events, um, his adrenaline was in the sky and his thyroid and his um, uh, other adrenals were in the sky in order to ensure maximum output from his superfit mitochondria. So we gear up to, to, to deal with stress. Now, of course, you can't sustain that unremittingly. If you gear up to deal with stress, then you have to have some, you know, downtime subsequently to allow the system to recover. But, my, but um, the adrenal gland function is essential and the thyroid gland is function is essential because the thyroid is the accelerator pedal of your car. And again, both adrenal hormones and thyroid hormones manifest through mitochondria. If the mitochondria aren't working, then there's no point sorting the thyroid and adrenals out because they're just, you're flogging a dead horse, you know. You can't beat up, you can't make something go faster that is already in a crippled state. So I now know that there's a certain order about getting people well. First, you have to get the diet right and the fermenting gut. Then you sort out their mitochondria. And then you get the thyroid and the adrenal gland right. And you do that through blood tests and through um, measuring core temperatures. So it gives a very good handle on how well those things are doing. So these are all tools that the man in the street can access and do you know, on their own. Because, because this wretched illness, chronic fatigue and ME, is so badly treated in the Western world, you can't rely on your doctors to get you well. You have to rely on yourself. You have to do it yourself. And, um, and that's a difficult thing to make because, you know, we want, we want somebody to look after us, but there are very few people qualified to do a good job of that. And therefore, you just have to grasp the nettle and say, I'm going to do it myself. And this is why all my books have got, as I call it, the rules of the game and the tools of the trade so you can get yourself well. In fact, I liken this to playing cricket. You know, um, what, what happens when you play cricket? Well, I, you give people the rules of the game and then the tools of the trade. So they all walk in there with a cricket bat and stumps and a ball. But every player plays that game differently. And I love cricket and I can watch a batsman or a bowler and you learn their action and you can recognise um, what they're doing and it's all different every every player is unique and it's exactly the same in the human world everybody will get better from their illness in a slightly different way uh, and it's up to them to choose their path so I can give say the broad outlines but they have to, to walk the path so when we've dealt with those four aspects of energy delivery we then have to look at what I call the holes in the energy bucket you know is the body wasting energy uh, in some way or another and that's where the ME bit comes in, because with ME, those patients have inflammation. And inflammation occurs when the immune system is busy. And the immune system can be busy for reasons of allergy or autoimmunity. And we touched a little bit on allergy earlier. But most commonly in ME, it's busy because it is fighting a chronic infection. And many ME patients, their illness is triggered by an, an infection um, from which they never recover. 
Now, the one that comes up at the top of the pops time and time and time again is Epstein-Barr virus or glandular fever, or as the Americans call it, mono. That is a really nasty virus, and it must be taken seriously. Um, uh, an acute glandular fever, in my opinion, is very poorly treated by the conventional doctors who think it's a bit of a joke. It's acquired, it's called the kissing disease. It's acquired through saliva, um, often picked up at university or often or triggered at university because, you know, that's when the kids go out and they start socializing, they start making love and having sex for the first time and they pick up this nasty, nasty infection. In fact, if you test people, 90% of the population will have had Epstein-Barr virus at some stage in their life. It's only a few of them that go down with it. And those few are the people whose immune system has been compromised. The immune system doesn't work well because um, they're not sleeping properly, perhaps. They don't have the raw materials. They, don't, they have a, a poor diet. Um, maybe vaccination, because vaccination uh, um, uh, destroys the uh, good immunity. Um, so there are any number of reasons why the immune or vitamin D deficient, or vitamin C deficient. Any number of reasons why the immune system uh, may not be functioning. Now, one of the problems with acute febrile illnesses, if you phone out your GP and say, oh, I've got flu, you know, oh, I've got Epstein-Barr you know, oh, I've got you know, a cold or whatever, what would the GP say? Oh, take lots of paracetamol, take lots of aspirin, and you'll feel much better. But what do those drugs do? They suppress the immune system. They're called non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. They stop the immune system doing its job. So it's like sending somebody into battle and tying their hands behind their back. You know, so they can't fight it. Uh, they stop you running a fever. And a fever is a very good way of dealing with acute infection. Um, so, and then say, oh, you'll be fine. Get on back to work. No, you know, if you've got an acute illness, you should rest. You should rest up, keep warm, give as much energy to the immune system as you possibly can to allow it to fight the good fight, get rid of the virus, and, um, and, and carry on with their lives without carrying a chronic infection. So the commonest, let's say, a viral trigger is Epstein-Barr virus, but any of the herpes viruses um, can, can trigger a chronic eating. And believe you me, they do. So shingles or chickenpox, varicella zoster virus, is very good at triggering a chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, herpes one and two are certainly associated with um, roseola, may, um, cytomegalovirus. These are all herpes viruses, and the herpes viruses all target the immune system and the brain. So, uh, you know, no wonder we get problems with them. But any viruses can do it. Coxsackie virus can do it. Um, influenza virus can do it. There are many viral triggers. And then we have to look for the bacterial triggers. And, of course, there are two that stand out, head and shoulders above the, all the others, and that's Lyme disease and mycoplasma, which are becoming increasingly common. And, uh, again, Lyme disease is a subject of denial in this country. It doesn't exist. But the latest figures from America suggest that they are seeing a thousand new cases of Lyme disease every day. So it's, it, it's all pervasive. And, uh, and, and one of the things that suppresses the immune system, dare I say, is sugars and carbohydrates. So if you're, if you're living on sugars and carbohydrates, you are immunosuppressed and you've got a much better chance of getting them. In fact, I can illustrate this with COVID-19. And even the deputy chief medical officer I noticed in the paper yesterday said that people are overweight and much more susceptible to COVID-19. But I have a mentoring group of doctors who, um, um, young doctors who are interested in ecological medicine, many of them working in the, in the NHS. 
And um, one of them told me in the hospital he's working in, so far they've had 38 cases of COVID-19 sufficiently severe to merit hospital admission. All 38 of them had uh, a BMI of over 30, so they were overweight. So of those 38s, we've had eight deaths, and all those eight deaths had a BMI above 34, so they're very overweight. Now, it's not that the fat causes the problem, it's, it's, it's how you get to being fat that's the problem, and how you get to being fat is by eating lots of sugars, eating lots of carbohydrates, and having high insulin levels. So the first thing you can do to protect yourself against COVID-19 is do a paleo ketogenic diet. In fact, that's the best thing you can do to protect yourself from all infections. You know, it is the starting point. There are other factors like vitamin D. Vitamin D is highly protective against COVID-19. Again, one, published, one paper published recently, experiences of one doctor dealing with COVID-19 who measured the vitamin D level in all his patients. Now, when the vitamin D level uh, was 17 um, nanograms per mil or less, the mortality was 100%. When the vitamin D level was 24 nanograms per mil, the mortality started to fall. By the time your vitamin D level was 34 nanograms per mil, the mortality from COVID-19 was zero. So there's a straight line relationship between vitamin D levels and uh, mortality from COVID-19. You know, it would have been much cheaper to issue the whole country with daily dose of vitamin C, uh, daily dose of vitamin D, than you know, furloughing, shutting it down, and all that. Because with good vitamin D, you are well protected. Same with vitamin C. Vitamin C is essential for immune um, function. Again, two studies published recently, one in Wuhan in China, you know, one in New York, where the very severe COVID-19 patients were given 10 grams of vitamin C intravenously over 24 hours. What was the mortality from that? Zero. Everybody survived. So again, vitamin C, highly effective. Why? A, it kills virus directly. B, it prevents the cytokine storm. It's the cytokine storm that actually killed people. Um, and the third thing I like to use is iodine because iodine uh, greatly reduces um, the low, any loading dose of virus you may get. And again, if you get a big loading dose, you're much more likely to get symptoms than if you have a little loading dose because the immune system can't catch up. So, um, um, so uh, I've gone sideways a little bit, I know now, but any acute infection can be treated in exactly the same way. Do not symptom suppress with medication. Now, let the body run a fever because fever kills microbes. Now, don't give cough medicines which stop you coughing. And guess what? Coughing expels, you know, gets rid of the virus. It reduces the inf infectious load. You know, don't stop diarrhea. What does diarrhea do? It cleans out the gut and gets rid of the infectious loading dose. You know, dee da dee da dee da. So let the, and the body has evolved fantastic systems for dealing with acute infection. Uh, and it's done that over hundreds of thousands of years. And guess what? Here we are today. We've survived. We've survived all those infectious insults, many of them. So um, um, that's the bacteria. I know I've skipped around a bit. bit but um, so the two major bacteria, let's say Lyme and Mycoplasma, and then the, and the third group are the fungi. And again, it's a simple test. We can do that for that. It's a urinary test that gives a very good handle on one's body's loading dose of, 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 uh, of fungi. So I kind of you know, try to condense the whole of the treatment of chronic fatigue syndrome and ME 
in a, I don't know how long we've been talking for, but um, um, that's it. <laughs> so have you got any particular questions you want to ask me about any one aspect of those uh, regimes which I haven't been clear about or you think your listeners might be interested in exploring further? Well, first of all, it's incredibly fascinating. And also the thing that I take from this more than anything is how empowering it is for the individual. Because we live in a society where, like, for instance, you know, if you watch the, you know, you watch the TV and the adverts, one of the adverts come on, one in two people in your life will catch cancer. Now, it makes it seem like it's a, it's a toss of a coin, when in fact, actually, no, you know, and that's when it becomes very disempowering and you feel like, well, what can I do? And then you're just handing, you're handing yourself over to the medical establishment to say they'll fix you. But actually, if you do the things that you speak about, you, you know, you're not going to even... And if you do, you're going to cure yourself. Well, I'll just talk about cancer briefly, if you, if you will let me. Um, the fact of the matter, and, and, and a patient asked me this very question today, you know, is there a blood test for cancer? And I said, no, because we, every second of our lives, you know, external forces, radiation, whatever, is creating 10,000 DNA mutations every second. So the fact of the matter is, is we are throwing up abnormal DNA all the time. Now we have a fantastic system for healing and repairing that DNA. It's called DNA repair and DNA ligase and DNA repair, which goes up and down our DNA, fixing all those um, uh, faults. But of course, some cells will get away and start to be cancerous. But guess what? The immune system is fantastic at nipping them in the bud. It's called immune surveillance. And so the immune cells are going, oh, that's abnormal, we'll kill it. Oh, that's abnormal, we'll kill it. And the immune system does a great job. But as I said earlier, cancer cells can only run on sugar. If you're eating a high carbohydrate diet and you are feeding those cancer cells, then suddenly, you know, they're getting away faster than ever. And can the immune system keep up? What does the immune system need? It needs energy. To, to, to fight the cancer cells and get them in the bud, and it needs the raw materials. And if you've got a fermenting gut, you've not got the raw materials. So, you know, Western lifestyles and diets are making us progressively more immunosuppressed, and they're eating lots of sugars and carbohydrates, which feed the cancer, so the, the number of cancer cells are, are growing all the time. And then we have other toxins that cause cancer, like fluoride poisoning for toothpaste, mercury poisoning for dental amalgam, pesticides, not eating organic food, um, you know, um, all sorts of carcinogens that are in, in the home. So it really is a balancing act. So I can never guarantee somebody's never going to get cancer, but you can swing the odds massively in your favour. And if you put in place all the regimes and ecological medicine, you will set yourself up for good health for life. And one of the very nice messages I can give my chronic fatigue patients is, okay, you might be ill now, but you get, as my daughter put it, you get your shit together. <laughs> that wasn't me, that was my daughter. Okay, You get your shit together, and you know, not only will your um, uh, health improve massively, but you will stay well, stay well, stay well, until you get to age 100 or 120, and then you'll drop off the perch very quickly. And that's what I'm going to do. And what I want, I want for my patients too. And I want it for you, and I want it for anybody who's listening in on this. And you know, we have the power to do it. Now, I don't pretend it's an easy path to walk. But uh, to my view, there's no choice. You know, you've just got to do it. And I'm always learning you know, new tricks of the trade. For example, you know, I'm learning about fasting. Fasting is a fantastically powerful tool to reverse type 2 diabetes you know, in a few days or weeks. 
know, treat the obesity in a few days or weeks. It works fantastically well. Side effects from fasting, zero. But what does fasting mean? Well, you can't eat. Yes, you want to you drink plenty of fluids and you must. Um, but you know, that should be a tool in our everyday lives that we're using. So, you know, so I'm learning about it recently and I started fasting recently. I've, not, I've now fasted for five days. So I had nothing to eat for five days. Has it affected my energy? No. What's my brain? It's as sharp as ever. Okay, I feel a bit deprived because I'm greedy and I love food. You know, I sometimes feel a bit hollow, but that's all. Side effects from fasting, zero. Anybody can do it. You know, this is a tool that you know we, we should all have available to us. So while you're fasting then, are you just doing taking water? Is that all? Uh, well, I'm afraid so I do have a cup of coffee. I can't resist my coffee. Um, um, but I'm, I'm fasting because I can't write about it and I can't teach about it and I can't help my patients until I've done it myself. If I can't do it, then they certainly can't do it. And, you know, I've rapidly worked out that all you have to do is just say no. It's all in the mind. It's like giving up smoking or giving up any addiction. You just say no. And... What stops people fasting, I suspect, is the fear of it. Oh, I will be hungry. Oh, I might be tired. Have you tried it? No, you haven't tried it. So, um, and, and I haven't felt any of those things. I felt a bit deprived, and I'm looking forward to breaking the fast. But um, I sleep just as well, if not better. So, front mind sharp, got plenty of energy, because I'm, I'm burning on fats. That's really interesting. I've done quite a few fasts in the past. The, the only thing I've done is maybe because I was, at that time, I was having a vegan diet that's i've transitioned back to eating meat and fish again and but i found some of my fast in the past that I, I would lose quite a bit of weight but what i did here probably because i wasn't in ketosis and i wasn't burning on fat but i have heard a good one from um a doctor dr axe i think it was he would actually do fasts but he would do bone broth fasts so all he would drink with bone broth for a few days and he found that he wasn't losing muscle during that time so well, you don't, lose, you don't lose muscle during a fast. Why? Because as soon as you drop your insulin, you start spiking growth hormone. And there's good studies that have shown, you know, you don't lose muscle, you just lose fat. And if you think about it, it makes perfect evolutionary sense. You know, did primitive man have three meals a day? I don't think so. What did he do? He went out hunting, he pulled down a buffalo or whatever. The whole tribe shared it. They all feasted on the liver and the heart and the muscle meat and everything. And then there was nothing left. And then there's nothing to eat. So they went and hunted again. But the, the reason why man was such a successful hunter, he wasn't fast. He couldn't sprint and catch them, but he could run them down. And he would use his brain to find out where they were, how they could be you know, coerced. There would be a communal effort, and he would just run and run and run, maybe for a day, maybe for two days, until the animal just died of exhaustion. And then he could move in and, and, and kill it and take it. So... He was fasting during that time. And if he'd lost brain power or lost muscle power, that would have not made him an effective hunter. And so what we know is brain power is actually enhanced by fasting. If you, if, and you can demonstrate this on the laboratory rats. You know, if you have laboratory rats ad lib, you know, eating um, their usual carb-based diet, grains or whatever, their maze-solving ability is poor. If you have rats that are starving, they can solve a maze like that. So it's a well-recognized feature that fasting, being in ketosis, doing ketogenic diet, improves brain power. Uh, in fact, a uh, um, um, wonderful study done by Dale Bredesen, 
Did I mention it? I didn't mention it earlier, did I? Yeah. Um, a consultant neurologist in California. Got 10 patients with quite serious dementia. And he put them on a ketogenic diet. And he gave them some nutritional supplements, you know, as, as we've detailed, and sorted out their thyroid and whatever. Nine out of 10 of those reversed their dementia and, and, and normal brain function was restored. The one lady who, who did not reverse couldn't stick to the regime. She didn't have the support to do it. And so that was a failure. But if that had been a drug, if that had been a drug that had cured 90% of people, that would have hit the headlines of every paper in the world and made a fortune for big pharma. But there is no drug that's going to cure dementia. You've got it because it doesn't address the underlying causes. And the underlying causes is all about sugars and carbohydrates. So um, it really is, as I say, the starting point to treat absolutely everything. And cancer is the same. I'll tell you another little story here. Um, we're setting up, as we speak, workshops for um, army veterans with post-traumatic stress. And the idea is they will, they will come here and I will feed them a ketogenic diet and they will receive um, psychotherapy and detox regimes because I've got a, a, um, a sauna there and uh, so they can sauna, shower, sauna, shower and exercise regimes and whatever. And one of the guys came up, and I'm sure he won't mind me telling you this story, um, because he'd been diagnosed with um, a, a lymphoma that filled his lungs with, you know, um, uh, with lymphoma. And um, uh, so you could see it very clearly on his chest x-ray. And the doctors had told him, you've got a week to live or something similar. And you're, you know, that chemo, it's too late for chemotherapy. It just won't work. And it just so happened he was coming here the next day. So um, we put him on a ketogenic diet. You know, I gave him a ketone breath meter, high dose vitamin C, vitamin C to bowel tolerance, my normal package of nutritional supplements. And that was about five weeks ago, I suppose. He then, he had a friend of his who was in the medical profession and he said, let's, let's, let's check you again because you've been sent home to die, but let's check again. I've just seen his x-ray, lungs are clear, the tumor's gone. And you know, the doctors told, you know, if he listened to those doctors, he'd be six foot under by now. So, you know, now, I don't say I see a lot of cancer patients. I see a few. But those cancer patients that I do have, guess what? They're absolutely fine. They're ticking along, no problems. I mean, one patient is a guy with a malignant brain tumor, glioblastoma, which is a very, a glioma, which is a very nasty brain tumor, uh, aggressive. And he had all the radiotherapy, all the chemotherapy, no more treatment. He's doing ketogenic diet. He's still running his farm. So... The power of diet is massive and it gets greatly underplayed. And, you know, I do understand the doctors in the NHS, they're completely overwhelmed. And all they can do is shovel out the standard modalities of surgery, radiotherapy, chemotherapy, and that's it. And when, if a patient says to them, and what about my diet? What they usually say is go and get as fat as you can. So what that means is when they get into the anorexic phase of cancer, the wasting phase of cancer, they might live a bit longer. Eating sugars and carbs just feeds the tumor and fires it up. Don't do it. Yeah, absolutely. So, are you hopeful of things turning around for you know society as a whole, or do you you know because you've talked about big pharma and we see, as you say, follow the money, and there's a lot of issues. And I think what's coming up from COVID nineteen, if you look in the press, there's not very many empowering information about diets and lifestyle and supplementation and 
you know, removing toxins from our body. Um, you know, and obviously that machine's pretty powerful. But I, but I also the internet's available, and you set up for yourself. You've got your website. Millions of views have been on there. There's plenty of other doctors. You know, Mark, Dr. Mark Hyman, I'm a big fan of over in America. Um, so I'm very hopeful in a way. And I think, like you say, the biggest thing is, is giving people the power to do it themselves. But it's also not easy because that takes a transformation because we've been used to just going to the doctor thinking, I'll take these pills and that's the answer. I know. It's too, it's too easy. No, but my view is this is not going to be a top-down revolution. This is going to be a bottoms-up revolution. It's, and this is why I, I'm very happy to do podcasts like this because um, I, I've tried changing the doctors from the top down and failed miserably over 40 years. So now I'm speaking to as many people you know, in the street, normal people um, you know, who are getting about their daily lives um, and empowering them to do it. And the point being is that those who've got the intelligence to work it out, those who've got the discipline to put it all in place will survive. Because believe you me, this will not be the last pandemic. There will be others and they will be much nastier or they may well be much nastier than this one. If you've got all these things in place to improve your immune system and, you know, um, uh, PK supplements, blah, 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 you will survive a future pandemic as right as rain. And so when the population of the world gets hacked down by disease and throughout evolution, the population has been controlled by disease. Um, I mean, the biggest single cause of death uh, from an evolutionary perspective is cholera. You know, massive numbers of people have died from that. Um, but if you put all these things in place, you will survive and your family will survive. Now, I can't think of a better incentive to put these regimes in place than that. Absolutely. And I'm, I know from my own health journey, when I've put myself in a good place, like life is so much better feeling well. Now, most of us, a lot of us, you know, it's a, it's a struggle. You know, it's what you can be waking up, you're in pain you know, all sorts of stuff. And it can just seem like a slope downhill when actually doing the things that you're talking about and other doctors are talking about, like you say, you know, I want to live to 80, 100 and then all of a sudden fall off a cliff. I don't want right. to, I don't want to have a 10, 20 year sad, lonely decline of a lot of pain and a lot of fear. Um, so yeah, it's, it's incredible to hear some information. And also on the other side, I'm not sure if you're aware of, um, like of Rob Wolf and, and Diane Rogers. Yes. Who yes. doing, you know, they've got a new documentary that's coming out called Sacred Cow, all about regenerative agriculture. And, you know, there's been a lot of movement in the past few years about, you know, the vegan movement and cowspiracy and a lot of them documentaries. And, and I, I watched them myself and I was like, wow, this is the way to go. But from my own health journey, realizing that actually I went four years without eating meat and fish. And when I was looking at my, my markers, I was deficient in all sorts of nutrients and it was shown to me that it seemed the best diet for me was to be in you know meat and fish again um yeah what, what your ancestors have done for the last few hundred thousands of years because <laughs> that's what our gut has learned to deal with and our body learned to run on you know it's and when somebody said to me i, I did a workshop the other day and somebody said to me what's the evidence that the paleo ketogenic diet is effective and my response was about 200 million years of evolution is that long enough for you <laughs> Absolutely. Now, if, if some people are listening to this and I know friends who are vegan and stuff, is it possible to do the PK diet, you know, as a vegan? You can, but it's limiting. Uh, I mean, yes, okay, there's lots of fiber, but most vegans power themselves with carbohydrates. So it's pulses, it's nuts, it's seeds, it's grains, and all those will spike your blood sugar. 
And I do know um, that veganism is a major risk factor of chronic fatigue syndrome in the ME. And I do encourage all my patients to go back to a, a, an omnivorous diet. Um, I share the same concerns that vegans do. And I'm in a very privileged position because I have my own hens, so I have my own eggs, I have my own pigs, so I have my own meat. And um, I share that round with as many of my friends as I can. And my pigs have a lovely life. They're grazing pigs, they're up on the hill, they're grass-fed, um, they live in a community. I think I've got 15 at the moment. Uh, we just had some new piglets the other day, uh, six new little piglets, which are adorable. And, um, and uh, every so often one goes off to market in order to fill up my deep freeze and my friends' deep freezes. And guess what the pigs don't know anything about it. Um, um, uh, as often as not, I, I treat them myself and process them on the farm myself. And they, you know, one day they're trotting around eating food and then bang, next moment they're gone. So I think it's a very humane way to um, um, kill pigs. And, and I hope a vegan would agree with me because if I didn't eat meat, those pigs wouldn't have a life at all. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And it's really inspiring when I hear that, because that's the path that I would love to go down. We're just about to get some chickens, actually. So I'm, uh, I'm excited about that. Um, and, and also, when I look into the regenerative agriculture, you realize how fundamental animals are to the land and how fundamental they are to the soil, to the soil health. Well, what am I going to do on, the, on this Welsh hill, you know, that's covered in grass, you know? Um, you know, I can't grow vegetables on it. It's, it's too high. It's too wet. It's too cold. But you can have grazing animals on that. So we have the best lamb round here. We have the best pork round here. We have the best beef because it's all grass fed and they live on the hills and there they stay. And if they weren't on the hills, I don't know how you would farm it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's absolutely fascinating, really empowering. And I'm sure my listeners will take, you know, incredible amount from this. One thing I just want to ask is in terms of on the supplements, because I've been looking and you talk about the sunshine, sunshine salt and then you've got yes. a multi-mineral mix. If you're taking them, will that... Yeah five grams that will that be sufficient in your iodine each day oh yeah, yeah yeah i mean you you either have the sunshine salt or the multi-mineral mix right i started with the multi-mineral mix which is fabulous it's got it all but it tastes awful and lots of people just couldn't stomach it so that's why i came up with the sunshine salt but yes it's got one milligram of iodine um, um in every tub in every five grams which is your daily dose so you're not going to get iodine deficient on that but because iodine deficiency is so common and um, underactive thyroid conditions are so common, I often recommend to my patients they take a little bit of extra Lugol's iodine every day. You can't do any harm with that. And again, it's another fabulous multitasking tool. Iodine does so much good for the body. It's necessary for skin, for breasts, for hormone production, for oxytocin, for the immune system. It's a, it's, it's a fabulous tool. And it also helps to detox. And guess what? Everybody's deficient in it. Deficiency is pandemic. Again, it's detailed in ecological medicine, the book, lots of stuff about iodine. Great tool. Yeah, I'll definitely yeah. Have book. There's no doubt about that. So with the drops, you just put some drops in water each day and then would sip it for Yes, I use Lugol's iodine, it's as cheap as chips, and um, maybe a drop in water. If you don't like the taste of it, you can put it on your skin. It's very well absorbed through the skin. Yeah. And it's a great treatment for any skin infection. You get a cut, you know, uh, uh, ulcer, an insect bite. Put the Lugol's iodine on. I tell you, it's great for insect bites. I'll just do a quick story now. I'm anaphylactic to bee stings. Now, that happened when I was a child. And, you know, I was rushed off to hospital, adrenaline, steroids, recovered. Uh, and since then, I'd never had a bee sting. Until last, last spring, when, um, um, you know, I was in the garden and suddenly, oh, 
stung right there in the in oh god what am i going to do about that because it's such a bore you know having an anaphylactic reaction now i always carry iodine in my pocket because when i'm in the garden i'm always cutting myself and knocking myself and getting thorns whatever so i'll kill it i'll lapse it with iodine so i covered it with neat iodine and within two minutes swelling had gone the itch had gone the reds had gone disappeared and again for i get the old we get horse flies around here at this time of year Horse fly bite, same thing. Normally, if I have horse fly bite, I get a great big reaction to it. Lapsed with iodine, nothing. So it's a great treatment for, for tick bites, insect bites, flea bites, wastings. It doesn't matter. Make sure you've got it in your pocket and, um, and you will do good. And I think about the things I'm speaking about as well with these, these are inexpensive items in the grand scheme of things. And I, and like I know on my own health journey, I've probably spent thousands and thousands on tests, doctors, herbalists, natural paths, functional medicine, doctors, you know, and it's been a journey yet. What's great about you, you know, you have got the website there with all the information, you've got the books and that's going to be the, cause sometimes even like we'll buy organic, but I understand that it's not possible for everyone. And, I agree. I know. And, it, and and you know, obviously, and you can still do a PK diet without it, and that'll still be amazing. Absolutely. Um, and, it, and you're going to be a lot better off, even if it's not an organic PK diet. You're going to be a lot better off than eating sugar and carbs. So then, um, my final question then, just to ask you: so, if there's someone listening to this and they're in that category of thinking, well, I haven't, you know, I haven't, I can't afford so much more extra each month. What would be some of the basics? Obviously, besides getting the diet right. What were some of the basic supplements that you'd recommend which wouldn't be quite inexpensive? Okay, so three top one, a good multivitamin, sunshine salt, which you can get from my website, um, get from sales, Dr. Myhill. It costs 15 pounds a pop. That's fantastically cheap for what's in it. I, I hardly make a bean on that, I promise you, because I'm trying to get stuff to patients cheaply. And vitamin C, five grams of vitamin C. Again, we sell ascorbic acid, which is the cheapest form. Not I'm trying to sell it from here in in half kilogram bags. You know, it's a cheap product. And what you do is you put it in your daily bottle of water and you slurp it through the day. So by the end of the day, it's all gone. Fantastic. You do those things, and you have a very good chance of getting that you know 120 or 100 and dropping off the edge like that. But it's hard work, and you just, as I say, to do all my friends, my patients, just do it. <laughs> That sounds amazing. I think, I think on that, that seems like a, a great way to sort of wrap up our conversation. And it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and, um, and listening to it. I've learned so much. And in some, in some ways, it's been a good refresher for me. Because like anything, you know, you can get excited about something. Like a year and a bit ago, I got super excited about keto. And I was going down that path and amazing. And then just slowly over time, I'm still paleo, but I'll be eating a bit more sugar and stuff. And then I'll get back into a bit of a rut. So it's nice. That keeps you on track. It keeps me on track. And believe you me, I'm as good an addict as anyone. But that keeps me on track. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Sarah, for your time today. Okay, Rob. Yeah. Thank you. Bye now. Bye for now. There is today's episode all wrapped up with Dr. Sarah Myhill. I think it's probably the episode that I've spoken the most least in. And I think in that way, it's best for me just to get out of the way and leave the experts to to share their wisdom um, and knowledge. And in this case, you know, someone who's been in the industry for 40 years, someone has got had the foot in both camps and very much about empowering people and just so much wisdom. In there. And I think when I, when I have these guests on and like, I feel so sort of empowered from it and so like ready to introduce a few things. Like I feel like I do quite a few good things in the health, but to hear some of them things and, and to get 
much greater understanding of how the body works and the thyroid um you know everything it's just a great analogy about the you know the car engine running and it is it's true isn't it? it's a great one to sort of take on but anyway i hope you enjoyed this one as much as i have if you have enjoyed it, please share this with a friend. It'll help to get this out, get this message out. This really important message um, about health and well-being and how we can empower ourselves, not just ourselves, our families, our communities, so we can live a really good life and help to reverse some of the issues, some of the big, big issues that we are facing at this time, not just through COVID, but just generally seeing the path that we've been going down in society. And yeah, um, also, um, if you listen to it on Apple, please leave me a review. If you're watching it on YouTube, you can subscribe and click the bell button so you'll make sure that you don't miss an episode in the future. And lastly, but not least, my Patreon page, which has been going for a while, and I'm really grateful for the people that are on there that are members. Now, if you would like to become a member of this podcast, it would be amazing for me. It would help me to continue to put out more episodes with more inspiring people. Um, so yeah, anyway, guys, Thank you for listening. Until next time, have a good one. Mm-hmm.